our series in 1 Samuel, Jesus is King. Of course, the whole book pointing towards uh, Israel's desire to have a king and our recognition that Jesus is our king. There is no better at king, which is uh, always a timely matter, but specifically in this political season, uh, a great reminder. But today we're going to be finishing out chapter 2. So the last couple weeks we've walked through chapter 1 and then the first 11 verses of chapter 2. We're going to cover quite a few verses today as we finish out that chapter. Big picture wise, here's what's going on. We've got several characters in the story. Hannah, who uh, prayed for Samuel and devoted him to God, gave Samuel this little baby uh, at the age of three, ended up giving him over to God to serve in the tabernacle and the temple. There, uh, at that point, it's still the tabernacle. This is prior to the temple. Um, but then we have Eli, one of the priests, who he's got some good things going for him, some not so good things. His sons, we're going to hear a lot about tonight, how they weren't very good guys, even though they were priests as well. And so today, these stories collide again, and we're going to see two families and, and their kids, one of them. Uh, wretched and therefore cursed by God, one of them um, pretty solid and blessed by God. And so this is about uh, disciple-making. The context, of course, is specifically with our children, how to raise them um, to know the Lord, to love the Lord, if that is possible. Um, And so if you don't have kids, just know that this also applies to your friends, your families, your coworkers, everyone else that you come in contact with. And so this is applicable to each one of us. And so the theme is contagious faith. I put a question mark there because uh, we'll see hopefully throughout tonight whether our faith really is contagious. Um, But as um, as we jump in to this, it's important for us right off the bat. We've talked so long through the the study in Philippians back last summer to all the way through Hebrews and and finding our identity in Christ and the gospel message. And and so purpose always comes out of identity and identity has to be found in Christ and what he's done for us, who he says we are. Uh, He created us. He gets the right to say who we are and how much value we have and our worth and our identity. And so he does. And we have to live out of that. But then we also get purpose. We get and not just the work of Christ on the cross, but we get identity. So we're all called to be disciple makers. This is just part of life as a Christian. It doesn't mean you're super charismatic. It doesn't mean you're great at telling the gospel or you even know every little detail. But we are called to be a part of this mission. He takes you by the hand and says, my spirit's in you. Uh, I got a purpose. I don't want to just work in you. I want to work in you, through you, to everyone else around you. And so um, it's kind of like, it's, it's a response, uh, but it's, it's like uh, in the past when Tara and I have gone hiking and we have come across all kinds of weird things, animals, uh, bears. I told you guys a story or two about that. Even on the coast, we've been hiking down in Florida uh, where we come across alligators, um, just weird stuff we've come across. And we know every time we pass by something like that, the people that we come across next, like we inherently know we need to tell them about it. And so when we saw the bear in Colorado, we told countless people through the rest of that hike, every single one that came up, hey, there's a bear, eighth of a mile back, hey, there's a bear, quarter of a mile back. We're just constantly talking about this bear. You just do it. It's just a response. Uh, you guys, you know, when you go into uh, Walmart or some store and you see like a, uh, you know, slippery 
sign, slippery when wet, and you think, okay, they just mopped, but you don't take it very serious, but then you kind of slip a little bit, and you're like, oh my gosh, this is really slippery, so you just inherently think if someone's behind you, hey, this is slick, or you go into a bathroom, and you recognize maybe the sink doesn't work, or the faucet is messed up, or maybe the door doesn't lock, and you're leaving, and you're like, oh my gosh, that was so uncomfortable, and you see someone coming in, you inherently do what? You got to tell them, like, hey, you might want to check out a different bathroom, that doesn't door don't lock or you can't wash your hands something is wrong it just happens it just happens and in the same way when you abide in Jesus when you when you're in communion with the father when you are in the presence of God something happens there's an overflow there's a natural prompting of the spirit saying this can't end with you this can't end with you I'm working through you and so it's for each one of us as a response but it's also uh, it's a call it's a call to be uncomfortable. It's a call to share our lives with people. It's a call to teach people. People wonder, what does disciple-making mean? Disciple-making, we don't need to overthink it. It's you and I abiding in Christ and the overflow of that going into the lives of others. It is intentional. We have to teach. We have to be able to, to share what is this foundational message of Christianity. Uh, but we don't necessarily need to be preachers and teachers in the way that we think about that. But it's a, it's a natural response. It's a call to get uncomfortable for the sake of Christ. A disciple is simply someone who follows someone. And so that's the end goal, that folks would know and hear and follow the Jesus that we have. It's not just a response, though. It's also a command. You see, each one of us, each one of us is making disciples. Whether you know it or not, if you're around other people, you're making disciples. The question is, are you making disciples of Jesus or are you making disciples of yourself? We're all influencing people for something, good, bad, or indifferent. And so as we walk through this tonight, I want you to think about a couple questions for your own life. Number one, are you making uh, the mission of Christ a priority? Forget about your, your personality, what you think you're gifted in or not gifted in. Are you making disciple-making a priority? And in that, another question, maybe a better question, are you taking the easy way out with some of the people in your life? Maybe you've written them off. Maybe you just think, oh, they're unreachable. Maybe you've been reaching for a while and you pull back and say, I can't do this anymore. God's not done with that. The story's not over. And so let's walk through this a little bit and see what God's word has to say. We're going to start in verse 12. If you've got a Bible, First Samuel chapter 2, verse 12 says, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. Remember, Eli is the priest. They did not know the Lord. So right off the bat, verse 12 pretty much sums up the rest of the chapter. These dudes are worthless, and they don't know God. So like we could just end the sermon here and be like, well, that's, that's kind of the whole thing. That's what it's all about. But there's some good stuff in this. The custom of the priests with the people was that when, they, when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first, 
and then take as much as you wish. He would say, no, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Okay, we're going to park here for a second, but let me just catch you up, contextualize what's happening here. In Leviticus, there's instructions that the priests would often eat part of the sacrifices that came in. Like, they got to have food. They got to eat lunch a little bit. And, and so there was instructions as to how that was supposed to take place. And the people here in Shiloh, they did it different, okay? This is before there's a temple in Jerusalem. There's this tabernacle. Joshua ended up moving it um, to the area there in Shiloh, which is like 15, 20 miles outside of Jerusalem. But they did things goofy. They did things weird. And it says in there, one of the verses said, this is how they did things at Shiloh. Like things are going to end. This is not a good way of doing things. And so what these guys were doing is saying, hey, listen, I know what we're supposed to do is wait till it's boiling. Um, and, and then we'll stick a big old fork in the meat and we'll pull it out. And whatever is there is what we get to eat. Well, there's two issues with it, and we'll find out one of them later when God condemns the whole thing. One issue is if you, before it's cooked, stick a fork in it and pull it out, like you're going to get a bigger piece than when it's all falling apart after it's boiling. So they, they wanted more for themselves, for portions. The other issue, and bigger, and it seems like in the sight of God, is that they wanted it with the fat still left on, and God told them, no, the fat is burned off, Okay. And so they wanted the better piece for themselves. They wanted more flavor. They wanted it their way, not to mention all the other junk going on with um, the violence and, and all that happening. But here is what we're going to park on. Christian culture produces nothing. Christian culture produces nothing. Now, keep in mind, this is Jewish culture that we're talking about here, but we're relating it to ourselves a little bit. So here's the bottom line. You got Eli and his sons who are also priests. They've been church kids their whole lives. They've seen dad serving. They've been around nothing but people serving God. If you look at anyone and say, who who got this thing down? Like who knows how to have a relationship with God? You're thinking probably Eli's sons. Like that's probably it. But church kids and pastors kids, they don't get a reputation for nothing, right? And so this has actually happened before in Leviticus chapter 10. If you go way back, Aaron, who's like the big dog of all the priests, you know, way back in the day, his two sons, they died in a, in a similar fashion where they weren't supposed to do something around the, the tabernacle and they did it anyway. And God said, nope, that ain't happening. And he killed them. And so you see the same sort of story happening, but hundreds of years later. So God is, he's angry. Because these guys are punks, and he's mad, it says that, the, that they took, uh, he was mad at the young men because they treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. The word contempt, the Hebrew word, can also just be translated despise. So basically, God's viewing it like this. If you and I, if we were having dinner together, and, and we were sitting at the table, and you knew that my meal was coming, and you jumped up, and you saw the waitress bringing my food, and you smacked the food out of her hands, I would be ticked off because I'd be like, number one, why'd you do that to her or him? Number two, why'd you do that to the food? But more than anything, you knew it was for me. Why'd you do it for me? And so God sees it as a slap in the face. They're serving him like they're the very people you think they get it. And yet God's saying, you slap me in the face while you're serving me all the time. 
and it ticks me off. It ticks me off. I think sometimes you and I, it's so easy to trust in our Christian culture, in our Christian home, right? We trust that it's actually producing something. If it could produce something, Eli's kids wouldn't be jacked up. Like if it produced something, you would think they're going to get like the court. They're going to get something good. Here's the bottom line. I love grow groups. Grow groups have never made a disciple of Jesus. Now you can be a disciple of Jesus and you can grow in your faith. People get saved in the context of grow groups, but in and of itself, a grow group can't save anyone. Bible studies, love them. The word of God, incredibly powerful. Bible studies cannot regenerate a man's heart. You can read the Bible, a seed can be planted, and the Holy Spirit, as it draws your heart, can regenerate as Jesus saves you. But a Bible study in and of itself can't do anything. A lot of people have read the Bible, studied it, all kinds of good stuff, and still rejected God. Happens all the time. Christian homes. We say, well, i got a Christian home, so kids naturally just being in this household, like the good, like a 99% shot, they're going to follow Jesus. There's no such thing as a Christian home. Like your lamp can't be Christian. Your door can't be a Christian. There can be Christians in a home. And you say, Ryan, you're being silly. Why would you even say that? Because the deceit of letting our guard down, assuming that an environment can produce something only the Holy Spirit can truly do, stops us from pouring into the very people God put in our lives to pour into because we assume everything's good. All the time. We all got stories of, uh, of people who think their environment did something that only God can do. I remember several years ago in Lynchburg, Virginia, downtown, um, we were serving Thanksgiving dinner at this, this house of ministry, and they told us, they said, go out to the streets. Um, there's a lot of homeless folks and just people wandering the streets. They said, go out to the streets and just invite people in. And I was just a young seminary kid, and so did it and went out. And I remember there was a guy across the street from me. He was sitting there smoking a cigarette on the doorstep uh, of what was his apartment or something. And I said, hey, man, you want to come over, have dinner, Thanksgiving dinner? And he said, oh, man, I'm good, you know, okay. So I didn't know what else to say. I had no one else around me, so I, I said, you know Jesus? <laughs> uh, punk seminary kid. He s- and he says this. <laughs> He yells back, oh, man, I got four uncles that are pastors. Yeah, I know Jesus. But that's not what I was asking. Conversation didn't go anywhere. One, probably because I was just a punk yelling about Jesus from across the street. The other one is because he was trusting. Not in one uncle, not in two uncles, not in three, three, four uncles that are pastors. Like to him, that meant something. To him, in his mind, he's thinking, anytime God is brought up, I'm riding the coattails of the four people in my family who, who seem to know God. There are no coattail riding into heaven outside of the one Jesus has. And yet so many people feel comfortable. And you say, well, that's obviously silly. And yet we do it all the time with our kids in our own home, assuming if we provide the right structure, if we provide the right environment, if, 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 I'm just, if my friends or my coworkers know I'm Christian, that's all that matters, right? Just me being with them is going to do something. It doesn't do nothing. 
I'm not saying it's totally worthless, okay? Please hear my heart and all that. I'm not saying we don't do Bible studies. I'm just saying we don't trust in things that aren't God. I'll tell you what. There's nothing harder than to disciple and minister to those who are closest to you. And yet there's nothing more important than to disciple and minister to those closest to you. As a pastor, I can tell you so oftentimes those who get neglected the most in my life would be my wife and son. Because you come home and you view it as, okay, I, I need to relax a little bit. And yet the very people God called me to long before he called me to anyone else are waiting for me. And we disciple each other. It's easy. It's easy. Some of you, you got family members, and your faith has taken off, but you've known them obviously your whole life, and you think it would be weird. It's on one hand, God has given me my sister, my brother, my, my parents. I could decide, I could pour into them, but we've never talked about Jesus, and I've been alive 30, 40, 50 years. How are we going to start talking about him now? It's awkward. I grew up in that environment. There's nothing more awkward than going home. I want my parents, I want my dad to be saved. But we, at any point in my entire childhood, we never talked about God. Now I'm just going to show up a few times a year and say, let's talk about God. When we had zero foundation for that, it's so hard. It's hard. I think parents struggle when it comes to discipling our kids in a couple different ways. One struggle seems to be more with younger families, um, but not totally. And then the other struggle seems to be with, with the baby boomer generation. The one that um, a lot of the younger families struggle with is, is simply an authentic faith. That our children see church as one of many things we do. But like when we leave Sunday morning and we go on with life, then okay, we go on with life. And we leave God where God belongs, and that's within his four walls. You see those statistics of 80% of the kids who grow up, and then they, they leave the house and go to college, and then they don't continue in the local church. And you think, well, how does that happen? I don't care what statistics you're looking at. You're always going to see number one or two is going to have something to do with the reason why that might happen. Because mom and dad said they had a faith, but it was a Sunday morning kind of faith, and then they live differently all throughout the rest of the week. They thought, why would I place my faith in something my parents don't really care to live out? The second one that I think many of us struggle with is the lie or the deceit that our, our faith is private. Now, you would think that this wouldn't be an issue, but for a lot of us it is. That we assume if we put our kids in an environment where they're hearing the word of God being taught by the pastor or in kids' church or, or wherever, that we as parents don't necessarily have to teach them a bunch of stuff all the time. And we think, well, my parents didn't really teach me that much about God. I just, they just knew I got it in church and whatever. And yet, we're leaving 99% of the discipleship on the table because we just assume they're good with what they heard in kids' church. And it happens all the time. I remember one lady in, a, in an old, old school church I was in, and she was probably 80-plus years old, and I was walking down the aisle, and, and she reached out. I didn't even know her, but I'd been there a bunch of times, and I had recognized her, but I had never met her. She pulled me aside. She said, come here. 
I came into her pew a little bit, and I could tell she's wanted to lecture me about whatever was going on in her life. And, and she started telling me about how she had been in that church for like 60 or 70 years. And prior to that, her family had migrated over here. They, they were immigrants, and they were part of like the Dutch Brethren Church. She was talking about heritage and these denominations, how she was, her family was part of the beginning. She went on and on. She was so excited to tell me about this. And I was like, wow, that, it is kind of cool. There's a lot of history there. That's great. Like, she's telling me how big of a deal this is. And then at the very end of the conversation, I said, that's awesome. How, how's your relationship with God? Like, I didn't say that to be a punk. I just, it just came out. She would have thought I tried to steal her purse. She went from grabbing to, she looked ahead, she put her hands in her lap, and she said, that's private. I was like, what? I just, I, I, I kind of backed away. I was like, oh, okay, well, good to chat with you. It's private? You're going to tell me all about your denominational history, and yet you're not going to tell me about the only thing that really matters, how the gospel has changed your life? Like, what? Why, why are you saving the good stuff for yourself? So, Eli gives us a little lesson in parenting and discipling and what not to do. You, you want to you wanna be a bad disciple maker of Jesus? You can do two things. You can assume that the culture is somehow producing a disciple. And you can create a disconnect between you and your kids. Now you say, well, how do you know there's a disconnect? We'll find out. We'll find out soon enough. There was obviously some kind of disconnect. Eli knew things were not right with his boys, but it was too little too late before he finally confronted them. Let me say this before we move on. How many times do you think Eli's boys watched him minister as a priest? Before they were priests, and then even as they were priests. He showed them what it looked like to serve. And so you say, where was the disconnect? If you show them what it looks like to serve, I'm talking friends, family, kids, but you don't tell them why we serve. You taught them religion, and they don't have a clue about the relationship. The fruit of your relationship without an explanation becomes the core of their religion, and they miss the relationship. You think, well, if I just show them the product of all that I've gone through, now I live a life devoted to God, and that's good enough if they just see it. Eli's kids saw it, it wasn't good enough. It wasn't good enough. But there's a flip side to this. There's a different family involved. Verse 18, Samuel was ministering before the Lord. A boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So when they would return to their home. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. All right. Second thing we see. When it comes to disciple making, you got to go all out. 
you've got to go all out. So we see a flip side here of Hannah, even though she gave Samuel over, and Samuel is, is hanging out with Eli. So Eli produced some not-so-good stuff, and now he's got Samuel, and he's like, you guys got it going on. Like if Elkanah, if the husband hearing this from Eli, Eli's like, your kid is amazing. If he, if he was Donald Trump, he'd be like, I know kids. I got kids. I, I have the best of kids. You know, he would get, sorry, that was a, supposed to be a joke. Never mind. <laughs> see, you see how quickly you can derail something? You throw Donald Trump in anything and it just throws it off. Elkanah's got the best of kids. He knows kids. And so, anyway, he goes there and, and is affirmed that Samuel is, is on the right path. And, of course, then we see Hannah and their family, they, they grow. Two completely different ballgames. When it says Samuel was ministering before the Lord and he was clothed in this linen ephod, that he, he's actually, no, he, he's serving. Even as a little boy, you can tell he's active in his faith. And then it says that the mother came and made for him a little robe. So she's staying involved. Even though she doesn't get to see him more than a couple few times a year, she's staying actively involved in his life. Every relationship you have, have had, do have, will ever have, you were given for a purpose. I'm talking close relationships, moms, dads. I'm talking meeting the mailman once a day at the mailbox. God doesn't give relationships to be worthless or to be void of something good. He doesn't give them just for selfish reasons. I hope we all enjoy the relationships we have. But God put every relationship in your life so that you have the opportunity to influence people for Christ. Every single one of them. And you say, well, I don't know, that might be going too far. Aren't there just some relationships that are, you know, like I just can enjoy them just for what they are? That's like saying there's some part of life that can be enjoyed outside of Christ. There's nothing outside of his mission in your life. Just like there's nothing his finished work on the cross doesn't cover. All of life is lived for him now, and so every relationship has purpose now. It changes things. And not only that, but if it's going to be gospel-centered discipleship, it has to, by the very nature of following Jesus, have to have a holistic look to it, okay? And we're going to talk a little bit about how we view discipleship in a, in a, in a different way than we should. But here's the bottom line. Jesus comes he gives us commands, so that's something to obey. But then he says, abide in me. So not just follow me, but abide in me. So not just do what I say, but live in me and my truth. So by very nature, to be a disciple of Jesus, you have to be with him and with others because his commands are in relation to other people. So many of us see each other so sporadically that we couldn't even testify to the depth of the discipleship in one another's lives because we're not around each other to live out the commands of Christ. This is why when Hebrews tells us to not give up on meeting with one another, like some have, why it's not just an option. It's, hey, if you don't meet with each other, you can't actually follow Jesus. We don't gather in community because we want to just 
encourage one another a little bit. We gather in community because the commands are bear one another's burdens, love one another. The, 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 all these one another's, 40 to 50 of them in the New Testament alone. You can't practice the one another's if you're not around one another. And so that means the mode of our discipleship can't just be a knowledge-based, okay, I hear it, now I'm going to go off and do my own thing. It's got to be communal in nature. It has to be what we hear and now we do together. There has to be those aspects. Let me expound. Here's some misconceptions that we have of discipleship in the church today. And I could go on and on and on, but I'll, I'll, I'll sum them up. The first one is that it's some kind of a class or a program. How many classes did Jesus offer? He had a message. Couldn't have been reduced down to a class. You say, well, that's not just, that's just you know, they live differently. Uh, no, no. Don't overthink this. It was Jesus. The reason why we don't see maturing disciples in the church, amongst many reasons, is because we try to take something that had to be lived in all of life and reduce it down to an hour once in a while. Or a class that only a few get to go to. There's a whole bunch, listen to me church, there's a whole bunch of mature Christians in our church that would love to go back 2,000 years and hear the Sermon on the Mount. And then take their kids and go home while the real followers of Jesus follow Jesus after the sermon. How many of us would have even hung around to follow him? Well, I got my hour-long sermon. I got my discipleship. More knowledge. It's amazing. Can't wait to go meditate on it and journal about it. And then I'll come back next week for his latest sermon. And yet those who were actually following him said, we're just getting started. Let's go. And yet the insights and the depth of what he just talked about is shared when he actually is sitting around the campfire with these guys. And he takes them and he says, okay, I shared that with the public. Let me tell you what's really happening. Most of us miss out on the intimacy of a relationship with Jesus like that because we wanted to take the info at a distance and do what we want to do with it and file it away in our box of knowledge of God. And, and maybe one day it'll come in useful. And so we'll go back this way. And yet we don't know what it's like to have intimacy with him. Because intimacy happens before and after the sermon. It's all of life. Second misconception, and, and this happened um, for many reasons, but if you go back to the 1970s and then on collegiate ministries like the Navigators put a huge emphasis that, that kind of spread throughout the local church all across America of one-on-one -on -one discipleship. Love one-on-one -on -one discipleship. It's great. It's wonderful. Sometimes it's exactly what's needed. But Jesus wasn't just a one-on-one -on -one discipleship kind of guy. He was a thousands. He was hundreds. He was 12. He was three. And then he had one that he really liked. He hung out with a little bit more. But he hung out with all the rest just as much, if not way more. It's got to be done in community. Again, because you've got to be around one another to practice the one another's. But your discipleship cannot be a one-on-one -on -one thing strictly. Again, all of these things are good partially, but they're not the whole of discipleship. And if it's not holistic, we're missing something. And the third one is something that, that 
Some of you are going to, you might get ticked off here, so that, that's okay. I love you. The baby boomer generation is the Sunday school generation. Sunday school is awesome. Many people have been led to the Lord in Sunday school. Many people have grown incredibly in Sunday school. Some Sunday schools have functioned like communities that are biblical. Okay? That being said, there's some cons to Sunday school. It has set up a knowledge-based discipleship program that has elevated the level of knowledge beyond the level of obedience for a lot of our folks. And so they know more and more and more and more and more, but 40 years in that system, they find themselves clamoring for one more little tidbit about the Bible. And Jesus is saying, 40 years ago, I taught you the basics. Have you started living those yet? Just feed me just a little bit more knowledge. And he's saying, give me just a little bit of obedience to what you already know. What Jesus taught his disciples, he expected them to live out. And it wasn't like this. It was, here's a little bit. Let's do this. Knowledge is good. All these things are good partially, but we got to have a bigger picture. we got to have a bigger picture. So we see from Hannah how to make disciples. Is you don't just tell your kids, your friends, your coworkers about the faith. You make it, you make their faith your faith and your faith their faith. You get invested on a deeper level. Three things we know about Hannah that she did. Three things we know. Number one, she had a prayer life for her boy. We already saw the prayers in the first couple deal. She begged for this kid from God. God, I'm devoting him to you before he's even born, if he's even ever going to happen. God, you gave him to me. I'm giving him back, and I am going to tell you, like, he is all yours. you got to believe she's praying for this little baby. Prayer is where the work is done. Some of you, you got kiddos you're raising, you got people you're reaching out to, you got to put in the work in the prayer. Martin Luther is famous for saying, I, I, I spent the first two hours of my day praying, and then I got so busy that I was forced to pray for the first three hours. You think, what kind of a perspective is that? The busier you got, the more you spent in prayer. How many of us have reached out to friends, family, we say, you know what, I'm meeting so-and-so at Starbucks for coffee. And you met for an hour. You're like, it was pretty good. I feel like some things are getting close. And you've done that for months. Have you ever, so you, I spent an hour with him at Starbucks. Have you ever spent an hour in prayer for him? Praying that God would do what only God can do, the important stuff. I mean, an hour in prayer? Your kids. Have you prayed audacious prayers over your kids, that they would change the nations, not in and of themselves, not for their own glory, not because they got something to offer, but because God's Holy Spirit wants to get a hold of them and do something amazing. Like, have you prayed prayers that make you cringe if they actually came true? Greatest preacher <laughs> that most of us know in the Protestant Reformation or since the Protestant Reformation, Charles Spurgeon, Keep in mind, known as one of the best preachers, if not the best preacher we've had since Paul, since Jesus, since Peter. Obviously, Jesus is going to be the best. He says this, Spurgeon says, 
But I know this, that we can do better without the voice that preaches than the heart that prays. I love this next one. The petitions of our bedridden sisters are the wealth of the church. The petitions of our bedridden sisters, little old ladies who, who can't get out of bed, but they're praying. They're praying. I can't go serve over there, but I can pray. And I can't be in church this Sunday. I can pray is the wealth of the church. And he said about prayer, that kind of service, the kind of service that seems so commonplace among men is often the most precious unto God. Hannah prayed. You got to pray for those you disciple. The second one is that she had a faith on fire. Let me simply say this. Here's Samuel's testimony about his mom and dad. This is, this is a drop the mic kind of a thing. Someone asked Samuel, tell me about your mom and dad. You're only with them for a few years. Tell me about your mom and dad. He's got a one-liner. They gave me to God. That's it? That's the testimony? Like if Silas grows up and you say, what did your dad do for you? If he says, he gave me to God. I say, I'll take that any day. I'll take that any day. If you're going to disciple people, listen, you, that couldn't have been easy for Samuel to be given by the mom. Even as a little boy saw his mom have to make a crucial, his dad make a crucial decision in their lives where their faith overwhelmed their circumstances. You've got to let people see, the, they got to have a little authenticity. They, they, you can't just be the one who has something to offer to the people around you. Like, we're not, we're not superior to those we're discipling. They've got, to see, they've got to see where grace meets brokenness in your life. Okay? Use wisdom in this. They've got to see it open up. They've got to see where truth and reality collide just a little bit. Sometimes it's good to make the battleground of your own sanctification a public display. Use wisdom, but if it's only private, you can be discipling whoever you want. If they don't see how it actually changes anything for you, why would they want it? And you can't just tell them stories about what you did back in the day. They got to see how it's still changing you. They got to see an active faith on fire. And the third thing that Hannah did is she stayed involved. She gave Samuel up. She got more babies on her own. She could have just gone on. But she comes back. She's making him a robe each year. you got to be a coach. you got to be an encouragement for those people. Your discipleship of someone is not just, I'm going to give you knowledge. Now I'm wiping my hands. No, sometimes it looks like 2 a.m. phone calls. Sometimes it looks like bailing them out of jail. Sometimes it looks like, they're not anywhere close to what you thought they were spiritually, and you are crazy disappointed, but you're not giving up on them. Sometimes it just looks messy, and it continues. Let me ask you this. What relationships do you have right now that lack intentionality? And if they don't have intentionality, that you're going to influence them for the sake of Christ, What's the purpose of them? Seriously, why did God give you any relationship in your life with a purpose outside of influencing them for Christ? 
half the people we disciple don't even know they're being discipled. But if they're going to hang out with us, they're going to move in this direction. Verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow in both stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Third thing we see is don't neglect the process. Let me take this last verse right off the bat here. Remember the prayer that Hannah prayed last week? And, and how we said it almost was identical to the prayer we see in Luke chapter 2 of Mary with her little boy. Okay? If you go on with Luke chapter 2 a little bit further, what does it say about Jesus' childhood? He grew in stature favor you start to see a parallel a little bit just a little bit of a type of christ okay so here's what we see in this we see a rebuke finally it looks if you just pass through this at home you're just like huh eli seems like a pretty good dad at least he's calling him out but we got a problem two little words in english that are a huge problem kept hearing eli was very old and he kept hearing so it's a little too little, <laughs> a little too late. He kept hearing about him, and, and we get the impression here that it was only because he was hearing these reports from other people. Starts to make him look bad, gets sick and tired of it, then he goes and talks to him. You can't tell me that this tabernacle, that he doesn't know what's happening with his boys. He's not hearing about it. There's women who work there, people who would have been raising Samuel, people who are helping in all these different capacities. He's sleeping with the young women. Not Eli, his kiddos. You got all kinds of nastiness going on, and he doesn't know about it, but it says he's very old. And finally he comes and says, hey, I'm tired of people telling me about what you're doing. Well, thanks, Dad. Thanks for caring. Now that your reputation is on the line, And then you see God's sovereignty in it, that God had a plan. He was going to do something with these boys, and so they didn't listen. They didn't listen. Some of us, um, (coughs) some of us have been pouring into others in our lives, maybe our children, maybe our children are grown now, friends and family. I want to be very careful how I say this. Because God's sovereignty, God will save who God will save. And you can't grow anyone and you can't save anyone. And so this isn't, to, this isn't, you don't leave here feeling guilty. This should spur you on in encouragement. When you see that maybe you didn't take discipleship serious, or you didn't see that it was more holistic, and you said, I'm going to just disciple one way, and that's the only way, and it's my way or the highway, and yet you left so much on the table. And God often gives us a wake-up call at some point. For some of us, it's our grown kids saying, I don't believe what you believe. Again, keep in mind as I say that, 
God is God. He will save who he wants to save. You could have done it all perfect, and he can still not save us, right? Because he's ultimately in charge. For some of us, it's a friend or a family member that we poured into. And then in conversation where we thought, man, they were in a good place, and they tell us about a grievous sin as if it's just small talk, and we're just like, oh, my God. Like, you're not where I thought you were spiritually. What does that wake-up call look like for you? Because every one of us in the room, if you're in, if you're in, if you're making disciples, you're going to have some of these heartbreaking moments where you're just like, oh my gosh, we were not where we thought we were. And it could be sad. But let me encourage you in this. Eli shows us what not to do, and that is when all of it's been done, he comes in in the aftermath and offers a rebuke. But we got to embrace the process, okay? We got to embrace the process recognizing we can't just come in and be like, well, looks like things didn't go well here. <laughs> I've been hanging out with you for 40 years, but I barely talk about Jesus, and now we're at the end of life, and you don't seem to follow him, and I'm just going to tell you you did it all bad. And God's like, why didn't you actually tell him? What? So we got to make sure that we teach those around us, obviously, to have a daily walk with the Lord, to be men and women of integrity, people who have a walk that has conviction that leads to obedience and repentance. But let me say this. If you're in the place tonight where you've had someone in your life that you were pouring into, this we all could have done better, so on and so forth, and you come to the place where you get that wake-up call that maybe they're not a believer, or maybe they're just not where you thought they were, you can do one of two things. You can sulk in it and just kind of give up. Or you can remember the story's not over. And you can keep on pouring in, keep on praying. And even if their story is over, <laughs> that you can make sure that you don't make the same mistakes as you did back in the day, and you can pour into other people around you. Last but not least. And there came a man of God to Eli, so this is a prophet, and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all of the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? So this prophet comes and he's reminding Eli about all of the family, all of the lineage before him and how God chose them. He's holding them accountable. So Eli is just sitting before him like, oh, this is not good. My household is being judged for what my sons are doing, and I'm being held accountable. 
Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now, the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress... You will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. So y'all ain't going to be priests anymore. It's going to end. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day, and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. Last but not least, and we'll make this short. When making disciples, you've got to get uncomfortable before it's too late. Obviously, there's a lot that this passage doesn't tell us about what Eli did with his boys. But God was not pleased. And there is a major bomb dropped on Eli. Eli gave the rebuke but he's still being condemned along with his sons and held accountable for what happens. When the Holy Spirit enters you, now you got a responsibility for those around you. That's why this isn't optional. I know there's people we're pouring into, and it's easy to get impatient, and it's easy to want to move on. We tell ourselves things like, you know what, it's not doing any good. Why keep pouring into them? They're obviously not listening. Let me go on, do something else. We tell ourselves, well, nothing's really going to change with them. Let me go on and pour into someone else. We tell ourselves, my time would be better off with people who are hungry and who want the word than, than them. Let me go off to someone else. I'm not saying there isn't a time to move on from those you disciple, except if they're your kiddos, you can't get rid of them. But if it is the time to move on, it's God who decides it, not you. It's God who decides it, not you. Your flesh, when it comes to disciple making, is going to say, I want out of this because it's hard and it's messy and it's time consuming. And sometimes I feel like I am worn to the bone. And God's saying, I'm doing the work. What I'm doing to them, I want to do first in you. I want to refresh you. I want to replenish you. Come, abide in me. You can't do this apart from abiding in Jesus. But we got to choose. Because I don't want to sit there in Eli's place with my son Silas, with, with you in this room, with the people here. I don't want to stand there and say, I saw brokenness and I was prompted to move, but I didn't because I didn't feel like I should or I didn't feel like I was held accountable. Or I don't want any excuse. I want to be able to say on judgment day when we will be uncomfortable. I want to say I got uncomfortable long before this, even when I could have chose comfort. Because there will be an uncomfortable day. 
And it's either the one you choose right now to get out of your comfort zone, or it's the one where he holds us accountable for staying in our comfort zone. And I know that if you're like me, we tend to disciple people in the ways that are comfortable for us. Right now, this is comfortable. This is comfortable for me, maybe not for you. I would love this. I could preach all day and all night. Don't worry, I'll wrap it up soon. I could preach and preach. Why? Because y'all are so nice and you don't talk back. This is easy. This is so easy for me. What's hard is living life with people. And I got to really get out of my comfort zone. And I got to pour in. I talk about community all the time. If, if it was up to me, I'd say let's just do Sunday school for the rest of our lives where we could just talk and do this and then leave and be gone. But God's saying you got you to gotta be with people, right? You got to open yourself up a little bit. It's so difficult. God will push you out of that place that is most comfortable because he wants to do in you what he's doing in another person. I remember when we planted and there was a gal named Lisa. She was probably 40 years old, but she had the emotional stability um, and capacity of probably a 9 or 10-year-old girl. And she couldn't do her own finances. She couldn't, um, she couldn't do a lot of the daily basic stuff that most people do, even though she lived on her own. But out of all of the immaturity and unstableness emotionally, she came from an all-Mormon family. And you don't leave an all-Mormon family unless you're ready to get just beat up on, completely dependent on her family members. She left it, saved by the grace of God, and said, I'm walking away from that for the sake of following Jesus. Mind-blowing spiritual work in someone that Tara and I looked at, like, according to human standards, there's no way she would be doing that. Like, this, that's God. She would show up two hours early to every worship service and just consume me in there. We didn't have anything in common outside of our faith. We didn't know how to handle it. Almost on cue, within minutes of the worship service starting, she would start bawling and run out of the church. First day we meet her, she, she bawls and just runs out of the church. She, she was having a hard time with the people all coming in, the doors, and she was just struggling with it. And she would go home, and by the time I got done preaching and I'm worn out, I would get home, and there would be beep. Beep, I, oh no, beep, beep. And she'd just leave me voicemail after voicemail. When, it, when the voicemail cut her off, she'd just call back and start it up again. Just bawling and telling me all about life. She'd call me every single day. Just tell me drama. She'd get me involved with her boyfriend who'd come in, oh, what's going on? And I was like, it was so awkward. And day after day, we got so worn down, emotionally exhausting, highs and lows. I'm doing great today with Pastor Ryan. It's wonderful. She called three hours later. I can't do this anymore. And just be bawling. And Tara and I, we'd be like, I can't. We can't do this anymore. The emotional highs and lows, this is tearing us up. We, we cannot do it. It's constant counseling, constant just ripping us apart emotionally. People in our grow group would say, we can't be in the group with her. She consumes every group, and then she starts crying, and then she, then she leaves. Like, we can't do it. We're going to leave this. Maybe we might even leave the church. And we're like, just relax. Calm down. We're not going to segregate her from the rest of us because somehow she's, she's inferior to us. She's one of us. This is who we came to reach. This is us. Okay? It's the irony of all of this stuff here. Okay? Is, is that Eli and his sons? That's us. Samuel is the better son. Jesus is the better one. We are Eli and Eli's sons. And God 
<laughs> he taught Tara and I patience. He taught us to love the unlovable. He taught us to stick with it. He taught us to persevere. He taught us to never give up on someone all through this one person. And what he was saying the whole time is, Ryan, this is what I'm doing with you. You're unlovable, and I'm sticking with you. You're hard to get through sometimes, and I'm staying with you. I persevere. I'm patient with you. I love you. And everything we struggle with the most with her, God was saying, this is what I'm doing to you. You will learn so much about the Father through discipling others. It's one thing to receive it, but when you've got to teach it and give it back out to people, you see it in a whole new way. And God works in powerful ways. Guys, there's no such thing as a contagious faith. There's only a God who draws by his spirit, who does works that only he can do. And there are people who abide in him, who love him, who are hardworking disciple makers, who can plant the seed and they can water the seed, but they can't grow the seed. And so they trust God to do what only God can do. And they know they're along for the ride and the things he empowers us to do. And we abide all day long. Don't give up on those you're pouring into. That's the gospel. He's not giving up on us. Let's pray.